0: The Storycast is brought to you by Audible.com. If you're like me, you love to read, but you don't have a lot of time. But what you do have is time in your car or mowing the lawn or rocking your kid to sleep. So get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at audible.com storycast. A motor is an engine that converts other forms of energy into mechanical energy, and so imparts motion. An engine is a motor that converts thermal energy to mechanical work. Flick a switch, turn a key, and get instant power, how our ancestors would have loved electric motors. There are probably two in your computer for starters, one spinning your hard drive around and the other powering your cooling fan. If you're sitting in your bedroom, you'll find motors and hair dryers and all the other creature comforts. In your bathroom, motors are in fans and shavers. In your kitchen, motors are in just about every appliance, from dishwashers to coffee grinders, microwaves, can openers. Electric motors have proved themselves to be among the greatest inventions of all time. The basic idea of an electric motor is actually really simple. You just put electricity into it at one end and a metal rod rotates at the other end to give you the power to drive a machine of any kind. Most electric motors operate through the interaction between an electric motor's magnetic field and winding currents to generate force within the motor. Electric motors are used to produce force, and engines, well, they're just a motor that uses internal or external combustion to burn a fuel to create heat, which then creates a force. And that force, mechanical, conceptual, or otherwise, is what we're here to explore. This time on the Storycast, start your engines. The General Motors EV1 was an electric car produced and leased by General Motors from 1996 to 1999. It was the first mass-produced and purpose-designed electric vehicle of the modern era from a major automaker, GM. While customer reaction to the EV1 was positive, GM believed that electric cars occupied an unprofitable niche of the automobile market and ended up crushing most of the cars regardless of protesting customers The EV1 program was discontinued and all the cars in the road were repossessed. Lessees were not given the option to purchase their cars from GM, which cited parts, service, and liability regulations. The EV1 discontinuation remains controversial, with electric car enthusiasts, environmental interest groups, and former EV1 lessees accusing GM of self-sabotaging its electric car program to avoid potential losses in spare parts sales while also blaming the oil industry for conspiring to keep electric cars off of the road. As a result of the forced repossession and destruction of the majority of the EV1s, an intact and working EV1 is one of the rarest cars. But the story of an electric car squashed for whatever reason doesn't just date back to the 90s. It dates back to the 10s, as in the 1910s and the story of Henry Ford and Thomas Edison, two of America's greatest inventors who tried building one and failed. That Henry Ford and Thomas Edison became good friends later in their lives is well known. They camped together. They presented each other with lavish gifts They owned houses immediately adjacent to each other. Many Ford enthusiasts also know that at the time Ford drove his first quadricycle on the streets of Detroit in 1896, he was working for Edison at the Detroit Edison Illuminating Company. They also know that a couple of months later when Ford was introduced to Edison and showed Edison his plans for a gasoline automobile, Edison encouraged him to pursue those plans that Edison and Ford later put their minds together to conceive a low-priced electric car is not so well known. At about the same time Ford founded his eponymous automobile company, Edison had made inroads into battery technology and began offering nickel-iron storage batteries for several uses, among them automobiles. His announced plans that same year to convert four large touring cars from gasoline to electric power using his own batteries, of course, reeks of a publicity stunt to sell his new batteries, but it was enough to get him listed in the standard catalog. And though he prodded Ford off into production of gasoline cars, by 1903, he was denouncing them, saying, electricity is the thing. There are no whirring and grinding gears with their numerous levers to confuse. There is not that almost terrifying, uncertain throb and whir of the powerful combustion engine. There's no water circulating system to get out of order, no dangerous and evil smelling gasoline, and no noise. Ford, however, still high on Edison's encouragement, he's often quoted as saying that Edison was the greatest man in the world, not only rigorously pursued the gasoline powered car and left Detroit Edison to found his own automobile company, he also ordered the development of a flywheel magneto system for the Model T specifically to avoid using batteries. Just about five years later, Ford began to change his mind. In early 1914, word had gotten around that work had started on a low price electric car. Reports appeared in the Wall Street Journal, in trade magazines, and in other newspapers as far away as New Zealand regarding Ford's foray into electric cars. Ford himself even confirmed the rumors in the January 11th, 1914 issue of the New York Times saying, Within a year, I hope we shall begin the manufacture of an electric automobile. I don't like to talk about things which are our year ahead, but I am willing to tell you of something of my plans. The fact is that Mr. Edison and I have been working for some years now on an electric automobile, which would be cheap and practicable. Cars have been built for experimental purposes, and we are satisfied now that the way is clear to success The problem so far has been to build a storage battery of lightweight which would operate for long distances without recharging. Mr. Edison has been experimenting with such a battery for some time. Ford, he may have fibbed a little by saying that multiple experimental cars had been built, but we know for a fact that at least one experimental Ford Electric was built in 1913, as seen in an existing photo out front of Ford's Highland Park plant. It was a tiller-steered car with an unusually swoopy frame and a contingent of batteries under the seat. Work on the electric vehicle continued into 1914 as rumors swirled in the automotive press for the remainder of the year, stoked by Henry Ford's secretary, Ernest Liebold. Ford was said to have bought an electricity-generating plant in Niagara Falls, as well as an additional site specifically for the production of the Edison Ford. As the year wore on, the rumor mill pegged the release of the electric car for 1915 and then 1916. Details on the car varied. It would cost somewhere between 500 and 750 dollars, and it would range somewhere between 50 and 100 miles on a charge. Edison himself, in an interview with Automobile Topics in May 1914, divulged no details and made his best it's coming just be patient speech, the kind that GM has perfected in recent years with its Volt. Edison pointed out, I believe that ultimately the electric motor will be universally used for trucking in all large cities and that the electric automobile will be the family carriage of the future. All trucking must come to electricity. I am convinced that it will not be long before all the trucking in New York City will be electric. There is no evidence that the press of the day ever got its hands on a photo or any solid evidence of the two electric experimentals that Ford had built, and eventually the press seemed to forget about the Edison-Ford altogether. Some conspiracy theorists believe the oil cartels got to Ford and Edison and caused them to abandon the project. They offered as evidence the mysterious fire that nearly destroyed Edison's workshops in West Orange, New Jersey in December 1914. Besides the fact that all work on the electric took place in Dearborn, and the fact that Edison got right back on the horse and had his whole place rebuilt by the next spring, we also see in the coverage of the fire in the December 10th, 1914 issue of the New York Times, that the fire skirted the two buildings in which any work on the electric car would have taken place. It was seen that the only important buildings that could have been saved were the experimental laboratory and the storage battery building, and all the attention was given to them. Mr. Edison was in the experimental laboratory when the fire began. He helped in the salvage work, and when that was finished, he went to the storage battery building and directed the protection of that structure. But fire or not, conspiracy or otherwise, the downfall of the Edison Ford electric car came about because Ford demanded the use of Edison's nickel-iron batteries in the car and would have no other battery powering in this car. Edison's batteries, however, were found to have very high internal resistance and were thus incapable of powering an electric car under many circumstances. Heavier lead-acid batteries, which would have made the car too lumbersome, were substituted behind Henry Ford's back and when he found out, he went ballistic. The electric motor car program quickly fell to the wayside with other projects demanding Henry Ford's time. In the end, Ford had invested nearly one and a half million dollars in the electric car project and had nearly bought 100,000 batteries from Edison before the project fell apart. And for Ford, the electric motor powered car died until 2010 when the Ford Motor Company announced plans to invest $135 million into two of its Detroit area plants, which created the mini Ford hybrids, the Focus Electric, the C-Max Energy and all the other electric vehicles that are hopefully soon to become modern history. All thanks surely in part to the electric motor that Henry Ford and Thomas Edison knew would be the force of the future. But motors aren't just limited to machine. Motors can be flesh and blood, as in people can have motors too. This story begins with a real world fact. The average cost of a center-based care for a small child in the US can be at least $12,000. And in states like Massachusetts, as much as $16,000 per child. So for the care of two children annually, it can approach the total salary of a lower to middle class job. When you do the math, it immediately becomes obvious that for some families, the required dual incomes, it might make more sense for one parent to stay home, especially if you philosophically don't believe in outsourced childcare to begin with. It makes the decision to lose 10 or 20,000 a year worth it to become a single income family and raise your own kids. And despite the very real glass ceiling on the female workforce, for some families, it makes more sense for dad to stay at home. According to the Census Bureau, Fewer than about 3.5% of stay-at-home parents are fathers. But what happens when all of those things come together? A mother who works and a father who stays home and works from home. A far cry from the stay-at-home dad, the work-from-home dad is a specimen all to himself. A workhorse with demands not for the faint of heart, requiring charisma, dedication, and many late-night hours wearing nurturer and partial breadwinner as a badge of honor, devotion, and a commitment to work and family. But quite possibly most important of all, it starts with having a motor.
1: It's daddy time. Welcome to daddy time. That is Charles. I have twin five-year-olds, also entrepreneur, two businesses, and a stay-at-home dad.
0: I wanted to hear his story and to see what it is that drives him to do what it is that he does. Let's start at the beginning.
1: Uh, When we decided to have children, we both have full-time jobs. Uh, She's a teacher. I uh, ran uh, a golf club, uh, the food and beverage department. Uh, I worked nights, weekends, and holidays and everything else pretty much. And she worked, uh, as you know, a teacher's schedule. So she has nights, weekends, holidays off. I would get home normally around 10, 11 o'clock at night uh, or rub her belly before I went to bed, and we'd wake up and have op- opposite schedules all over again. Uh, upon upon the children arriving, uh, we 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 experienced or tried it out for about six months, and then we had decided that uh, putting our children in daycare um, or and not seeing each other ever was just not a life that we wanted. Um, I as well have had my business running, so it for us was a no-brainer. I can expand business. She she has a great work schedule and loves her job. We have great benefits. Um, That's that's what we were gonna do. But little did I know that I wasn't going to be able to work as much as I thought I was. So let's fast forward to the real beginning, the beginning of a typical day. Uh, My day starts in the morning, right around 6.30 to 7 o'clock. And it ends normally around one, two a.m. in the morning. Get up in the morning, um, two kids. I mean, it's it, it's ever evolving on how, uh, and and how your daily routine goes. They will come jump in bed with me and cuddle. Um, that makes you not want to get out of bed really. But uh, that's 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 one of my most favorite parts of the morning, is that. So we lay in bed. Um, I get on my phone and uh, check my emails, uh, what my day entails or is going to entail. Go downstairs, put the laundry in, get the dishes going, um, and hop on my email and maybe shoot off a few emails before I make breakfast. And it's breakfast time, so dad's making shaped pancakes of any form or fashion, specifically superheroes. So
0: could the modern work from home, stay at home dad, be a type of superhero himself? And how do you raise two kids and run a business
1: all at the same time? So my business, um, I deal in marketing, um, advertising. I've been in business for about 14 years now. I have a good number of clients that that need me on a day-to-day basis. And so, right when I was when the flow of the day was going well, it is completely halted by an email or a call or hold on guys, I have to go take care of this or you guys please be quiet. I have a call. So then while I'm on the phone call, while this we're having a major issue, I have the phone on mute while my kids are screaming in the background and I'm trying to listen to the client's needs. And trying to tell my kids to be quiet at the same time, so I probably take in about 40% of what the client's saying, and uh, and and go from there. And then I step away, I unmute it, I say my piece, and then I step back into the chaos of of both my client and my children, which neither one of them know what's going on on the other end. So the day can be frustrating, it can be crazy, but challenging. Every day's a new challenge. And being a stay-at-home dad has been the best thing and most definitely the most challenging. So how does one square off with those challenges? Is it pulling from
0: past experiences, discovering your own personal motor, or just finding some combination of whatever works?
1: At some point in my life, I had a job that required me to work anywhere from 15 to 25 hours a day it kind of helped me find my limits. Um, so in finding those limits, I circled back as I have children and run two businesses. Uh, it, it made me uh, once again feel like I was 18 or 19, you know, finding those limits all over again. Um, so those, so that motor, it, it's constantly running. And you know, it, I try to keep it at idle as much as possible through the kids fighting and pulling hair and what whatever it might be I mean it's always maintaining that constant and and being there for not only for my business but for my children and then my wife when she gets home it's a full-time job it's two full-time jobs and more Every parent, I think, is special. Every situation is special and unique. But raising twins, so you're always man on. You know, you're always playing zone defense. Adding in, you know, the whole work aspect of things, uh, is the biggest challenge of my life. But you can't stop. Um, and and there is a motor there that uh, that drives you. And if if you want to be successful. Uh, you you think, how do people become successful? They become successful by having that drive. And in being a stay-at-home dad, I want to be, and most importantly, be successful with my children, and I want my children to be successful. But then you want to be successful yourself in, in what you do. So I always have to come back and tell myself the main reason why I'm doing this is to take care of my children to instill in them the best qualities that I can and do the best job I can with them. But then work falls in. And that is, I carry that same weight through with work. When I present myself, my company, um, the business, I want it to be successful. I want it to represent it successfully. I want to be professional with it. So therein lies your challenge. My motor, I, I can go, I can go and go and go, and I normally don't feel tired. I just have that internal, internal force that you're talking about, that internal burn, but the tank never runs dry. It can't, you're a parent and a business owner. The family
0: will soon turn the page. That ever constant motor, Charles says, he tries to keep it idle. Well, he may get to dial it down a notch this fall as his boys turn six and head off to start school. And business? He says it couldn't be any better. Mission complete? I think so. body of steel, a strength that can actually move mountains, a living force that can go on forever. Sometimes, man is machine. And that driving force, that turning engine, that powerful motor in my own life was always my grandfather. My grandfather passed away on July 17th, 2011. And as much of a cliche as it is to say, his memory will never fade. He was the constant motor of his whole family for every moment that we walked this earth. And he still is. And one afternoon more than two decades ago, he was literally my motor. You see, Don didn't have a motor on his rowboat because that's the kind of man he was. And Don always woke up at 4.30 a.m. to make coffee and sourdough biscuits and bacon cooked just right because that's the man he was. And when we'd go to visit, Don was always good for the biggest bear hug you could imagine. And mid hug, he always smelled of Old Spice and a little bit of hard work because that's also the man he was. So when Don drove his family out to the lake one hot summer afternoon, he had his rowboat in tow because his grandson wanted to go boating. And when that grandson wanted to go across the lake in the rowboat, he sat steady at the oars and told me to hop in because that's the kind of man he was. And even though as we crossed the lake, we'd be passing a dangerous waterfall, my mom didn't worry, because that's the man he was. And on our way back, when we got caught in the current and started to float towards that waterfall, I didn't worry either, because that's the kind of man he was. And for the better part of an hour, when I saw his face redden, his muscles strain, and his sweat pour as he fought us safely back to shore, I knew the man I wanted to become. And when my grandfather passed, I wrote and delivered this part of the eulogy at his service, but he he wouldn't like this music. It's too depressing. Yeah, that's better, much better. My grandfather loved the mountains, his country, his land, his Eastern Cherokee heritage. He loved a hard day's work, his shop, his tools, woodworking, craftsmanship, A job well done. He loved fishing and traveling, camping and hiking, picnicking and camp hosting, storytelling and croquet. He loved trains, tractors and airplanes, making home movies and making homemade ice cream. He loved coffee and ginger snaps, sourdough biscuits, sourdough pancakes, sourdough bread, making chocolate chip cookies and of course eating his chocolate chip cookies. He loved birthdays and party hats, practical jokes and gag gifts, Santa, Frosty and Rudolph, Christmas carols and sleigh bells. He loved his faithful four-legged pal Joey, his many friends, and more than anything at all, his family. And we loved him. So if you out there have had a grandpa who's passed away, just swap in your own nouns and adjectives there and try to understand the story behind your grandpa's motor And if your grandpa's still alive, for God's sakes, go give him a hug right now. I mean right now. The Storycast was produced by myself. You can find me on Twitter, at Russell Silva. And a quick announcement, there will only be one more episode left in season one of Storycast. We'll be taking July and August off to get ready for season two. And if you're interested in donating or sharing our campaign to get to Chicago for Podcast Move in 2016, head to chicago.storycastpodcast.com. And please head over to storycastpodcast.com to click on the Amazon banner to support us with your Amazon
1: purchases. Thank you.